Yes, good to see you. All right, you look as though you're a bit sleep-deprived, but <laughs> I, you explained that to me earlier on. Steve's had a number of phone calls during the night that we don't quite understand where they've come from, so <laughs> hopefully you'll be able to uh, see us through. Steve, you're going to um, be speaking later on, and we've been looking at this book of 1 Peter that has a lot of similarities in what he was saying to some first-century brand-new Christians to our context here today. So you're going to pose us a question. Uh, for those of you that are online, if you'd like to engage with this in the usual way, and what's the question, Steve? The question is, who has been the most influential person in your exploration of faith? Who has been the most influential person in your exploration of faith? Let's assume Jesus first, okay, but we'll then we'll have somebody, somebody else or some other people. So uh, could that, that be somebody we know personally or an author or an quite, artist it could or be quite musician. quite possibly a mixture any of, of any of those above but okay. it's just that whether you, whether or not you're a christian there may well be some people here today or online who are on a bit of a journey of faith and they might have some people that they can look to to say actually yeah. they they help me on the next step or they help me wrestle with some of my questions so yeah who are those people that have been influential in your exploration of faith and if you're here in the building just maybe think that through who may have been that person, we're going to pray and thank God for them later on. So think about who that person might be. Well, we're going to uh, hear the passage of Scripture read to us, and Hillary's going to come and do that for us. Thank you, Hillary. Yes, it's 1 Peter 3, verses 1 to 12 from the message. The same goes for you, wives. Be good wives to your husbands, responsive to their needs. There are husbands who, indifferent as they are to any words about God, will be captivated by your life of holy beauty. What matters is not your outer appearance, the styling of your hair, the jewellery you wear, the cut of your clothes, but your inner disposition. Cultivate inner beauty, the gentle, gracious kind that God delights in. The holy women of old were beautiful before God that way and were good, loyal wives to their husbands. Sarah, for instance, taking care of Abraham, would address him as my dear husband. You'll be true daughters of Sarah if you do the same, unanxious and unintimidated. The same goes for you husbands. Be good husbands to your wives. Honour them, delight in them. As women, they lack some of your advantages, but in the new life of God's grace, you are equals. Treat your wives, then, as equals, so your prayers don't run aground. Summing up, be agreeable, be sympathetic, be loving, be compassionate, be humble. That goes for all of you, no exceptions. No retaliation, no sharp-tongued sarcasm, Instead, bless. That's your job, to bless. You'll be a blessing and also get a blessing. Whoever wants to embrace life and see the day fill up with good, here's what you do. Say nothing evil or hurtful. Snub evil and cultivate good. Run after peace for all your worth. God looks on all this with approval listening and responding well to what he's asked, but he turns his back on those who do evil things. 
I wonder how this morning makes you, how this morning's reading makes you feel. My guess is it might feel differently to wives as it does husbands, or women as it does men, or those who aren't married to those who are. Especially if you're more familiar with the words of this part of scripture from other translations. Words like, wives in the same way submit to the authority of your husbands. Or again, speaking to wives, this time in reference to Sarah, Abraham's wife. You are her daughters when you do what is right without fear of what your husbands might do. These are some stark words that require careful consideration if we're going to truly understand Peter's appeal to wives, to husbands, and to us all. But before I get to that, let's briefly remind ourselves of the context of this passage and the place in Peter's letter in which it's found. Peter is writing to the church in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, to a young but growing church who are wrestling with what it is to be a minority dominated by the powers around them. Last week, looking at 1 Peter 2, Andrew spoke about being salt and light in such a community. Peter reminded his readers that they should live such good lives among pagans that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. And that they should honour the ruling authorities, again, living lives that silence this ignorant talk of foolish men. The consistent theme of this part of the letter is to say, look, your lives speak volumes. Your lives speak volumes. I know it's hard living surrounded by pagans who accuse you of all, with all sorts of lies, but fighting back is going to achieve nothing. It's not how Jesus did it. It's not how you do it. Instead, draw them towards God by your sacrificial lives of kindness. Or I know it's rough, being ruled by authorities that don't know God. But don't revolt, don't descend into anarchy. Yes, should you ever be forced to choose between God and Caesar, ultimately you know you are citizens of the kingdom of God before you're citizens of Rome, but live lives that shine a light in that darkness. That will be far more effective for the kingdom than rebellion or violence. And we didn't cover it last week, but Peter then goes on to say, slaves should live exemplary lives, even in the face of suffering under harsh masters. Peter repeats that Christ is our example here. He suffered greatly under the oppression of an unjust and violent authority, but he didn't retaliate. Instead, he entrusted himself to God. Peter, of course, is not saying that slavery is a good thing. Far from it. He acknowledges the bitter injustice of it. But he is trying to give some guidance as to how the kingdom of God can shine in the darkness of injustice if we are able to humble ourselves and resist injustice but not allow it to crush us. Instead, leaning on us and trust, leaning on and trusting in God to help us overcome as Christ overcame. And so it is in this context that Peter addresses wives, saying the same goes for you, wives. And perhaps even more specifically, wives who are having to endure the unjust patriarchal society around them. Wives who are married to men, 
who don't know God and for whom it is quite normal to treat their wives dishonorably and as second-class citizens. That is the challenge many Christian wives were facing at that time. You see, while the church in Asia Minor was still quite young, there were a lot of women in it. In wider pagan culture, it was not unusual for female children to be exposed or more bluntly, disposed of. Left to starve, eaten by animals, sold into slavery or prostitution, girls were considered expensive and a nuisance and therefore disposable. Christians, like Jews, refused to treat their daughters this way. So while there were fewer marriageable pagan girls around, Christian young women were aplenty. And Peter is acknowledging the value and the dignity of these Christian women who were often married to non-Christian men simply by addressing them specifically, even when they may not have been educated sufficiently to read the letter for themselves. In addressing them specifically, let me be clear about what Peter is not saying. He is not defending or giving any credence to the patriarchal society under which they were suffering. He is not saying it is right that women should be subject to the control and domination of their husbands. He is not saying that in exactly the same way that he is not saying slavery is justifiable or that Caesar is king. For Peter, Jesus is the king of lords, the king of kings and the lord of lords. Caesar is merely a man-made monarch. For Peter, slave masters are perpetrators of unjust suffering. For Peter, husbands and wives should be equal. Nothing less than that falls short. Anything less of that falls short of how things should be in the kingdom of God. But of course, the kingdom of God is not fully realized. So wives suffer under the authority of their husbands, given by the culture in which they live. So what should they do? Fight back? Rebel? Peter says, no. As far as you're able, conduct yourselves with gentle love and grace and humility. It is far more likely that your husbands will be won over to a similar way of life if you are able to model it. It is far more likely that your husbands will be drawn to a loving, compassionate and merciful God if you can model love, compassion and mercy. But let me pause for a moment and be clear. Peter is not suggesting, not even for a moment, that women should tolerate abuse or violence. A marriage is a marriage in the eyes of God when women love their husbands and treat them with respect and honour, and when husbands love their wives and give themselves their whole selves, even to death for them. Anything short of that might be a contract of marriage, but it is not a covenant of marriage. And when the covenant has been torn to shreds by either party, the contract is worthless. God does not want women to suffer abuse at the hands of their husbands and would never condemn you for needing to walk away. And neither will we. Peter is simply saying this patriarchy is not of God's kingdom. But God's kingdom will grow. Things will change if the hearts of men can be changed. 
Part of that is to love them, even when they take you for granted, even when they allow the culture in which they have been formed to leave you feeling second-class citizens, even when they don't deserve to be loved. And then Peter, all too briefly, in my opinion, turns to the men. In the same way, that phrase again, the same goes for you, be good husbands to your wives, honour them and delight in them. Some translations say this, she may be weaker than you are, or paying honour to the woman as the weaker sex. Again, let's be clear what Peter is not saying. Peter uses the word weaker not to affirm a man's power, authority, or stature. The passage is not suggesting that there is a biblical hierarchy of power, or that men are somehow morally stronger. Peter is just stating a fact of the culture of the day and tragically a fact of the culture of our day, namely that women were not and still are not afforded the same dignity, opportunities and power as men. And in that respect, regretfully, women are weaker. But that is not how it should be. That's why I love the translation that we've heard this morning. Peter says to the Christian husbands, as women, they lack some of our advantages. But in the new life of God's grace, you are equals. Treat your wives then as equals so your prayers don't run aground. In other words, if we husbands, if we Christian husbands cannot participate in the kind of mutual love and grace that Peter expects of wives who are suffering under men, then we cannot expect God to listen to our prayers. If we can't honour our wives, then why should God honour us? This passage does not give us men the green light to exert authority over women. Men and women are equal. And where our society does not reflect that, guess what? It is our responsibility to be salt, to be light, and to model a kingdom's values that strive to change the culture around us. Which is, of course, where this section of the letter finishes up. If you're not a husband, if you're not a wife, you are not exempted to this life of living as salt and light that Peter is challenging us with. This passage is talking about human relationships in all their guises. Our relationships with those in authority, our relationships with those for whom we work, our relationship with those with whom we are covenanted. It is talking about our relationships with all those in this story in which we find ourselves, including our relationships with each other within this family of faith. Peter's vision for the church is for it to be united. He says, be agreeable, be sympathetic, be loving, be compassionate, be humble. That goes for all of you, no exceptions. But he also seems to realise that this is not always going to be the case. He feels the need to help us understand what we must do in the face of evil and hurtful actions. He says, no retaliation, no sharp-tongued sarcasm. Instead, bless. That's your job to bless you'll be a blessing and you'll get a blessing maybe not always from those who look down on you but at least you'll get a blessing from God one translation says repay evil with blessing because, this, because to this you were called 
It is a simple love your enemies message. A simple message, yet one of the hardest and most important callings we are subject to as Christians. All of us, at one time or another, will be treated by someone or by some people in ways that are wholly dehumanizing, dishonoring, devaluing, or just plain hurtful. And because we are surrounded by a culture that tells us to fight back, to bite back, we will inevitably face the temptation to retaliate. Maybe not physically, but we're all capable of gossiping unkindness, fueling division, and persuading ourselves that these little actions of spite are justified when we face injustice. But that way is not the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom is love, not hate. Forgiveness, not vengeance. Mercy, not retaliation. Grace, not resentment. These are not optional extras for those of us trying to follow the way of Christ. Our calling is to cultivate good, run after peace for all your worth. Peace will not simply come to us. We have to intentionally run after it, intentionally work for it. Our calling is to bless as we have been blessed, to bless those who do not deserve our blessing. In a moment, I'm going to join uh, the band and we're going to pray and then respond to God in worship. But as I do that, as I move over, I want you to think of someone or some people that have mistreated you. It may be recently, it may be a long time ago. It may be your husband, it may be your wife, it may be someone you work with, it may be a friend maybe a recently estranged friend, maybe someone within this church. Whoever it is, I want you to just picture their face. And please don't think I'm underestimating how hard that may be. Neither Peter or I are unaware of how hard the calling to love those undeserving of our love is. But passages like this must have an impact on our lives if we are to grow and change as disciples of Christ. And that requires us not to walk away from the tough challenges of our journey of faith, but to embrace them wherever we can. Hold the image of that person or that people at the front of your minds as we come to God in prayer. Loving God, many of us here today and many of us watching online have at some point in our lives made a decision to follow you. We made that decision because of who you are and what you have done for us through your son. But today we are reminded of what a life-changing and challenging that decision is. Because loving those who treat us unkindly who don't value us the way you value us. Loving our enemies, 
is just so hard. And this morning as we worship you now, remind us of how you modelled this calling so perfectly in your son. Remind us that we have the right to stand up against injustice, but we don't have the right to hate. Teach us your ways and make the lives of those who don't know you or have forgotten your ways of your kingdom be changed by our lives of grace, forgiveness and love.